we've got a hedonic or reward-based pleasure-seeking pathway that starts to override your body's pathway that wants to maintain balance. In this case, McDonald's you're talking about is formulated to want to increase intake. We've got food scientists that work in labs that are their whole job is to formulate the best recipes to increase consumption, right? It's a business thing. They want to sell more french fries. How do we sell french fries? Making them taste really, really good so that they're hooked on it. So it's not a mistake by any means that that happens. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 120 countries around the world and coast to coast in the U.S. So hello to the Exam Roomies listening in Eugene, Oregon, Cheyenne, Wyoming, and New York, New York. We appreciate you helping us to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 88 of season 4, number 283 overall. And today we are going to be having ourselves some real talk about cravings and what makes the junk food habit so hard to kick. If you've ever been on a diet and you've reached day 2 or day 3 and you haven't had that piece of chocolate or that bag of chips or that cheeseburger, you've probably experienced this your brain starts to spaz out and all you can focus on is that food for me that food was taco bell and i mean when i didn't get my fix then man i was not happy i mean there was hangry and then there was this and if i went too long i would start to feel physically sick too and I am not alone in sharing that struggle. No way. It's that impasse that we reach when we think that we can't take it any longer. And then we give in and we go right back to our old habits and our attempt to get healthy has just been run right off of the tracks. And so today on the show, we're going to try to answer these questions. Number one, why does this happen time and again? Number two, is it your fault? And number three, could your brain be reacting the same way to junk food as it does to drugs? Can you get hooked on fat and sugar and oil and salt in the very same way that you could on cocaine and alcohol, tobacco, or even heroin? Well, to get these answers, we're going to welcome back a woman who specializes in this. And she's devoted her life to actually teaching young minds all about the power of food. Dr. Mickey Witt, a neuroscientist and adjunct professor at the University of Miami, is here with us today. And this is actually part two of my two-part conversation with her. She has a brilliance for the brain and the belly, that connection. And she's going to be shedding some light on one of the biggest reasons that it is so hard to lose weight. So let's learn together and discover cravings and why junk food sends the brain into overdrive. 
Dr. Mickey Witt. Thank you so very much for being here. Thank you for having me, Chuck. I'm glad to be here. I will tell you from my experience, when I was addicted to fast food, and anybody who's listened to the show with any regularity knows that Taco Bell was my vice. It might as well have been my cocaine. Uh, when I did not get that fix, uh, things would change about me. My personality would change and I would start to feel you know, physically ill. And those are the same kind of symptoms that mirror other people when you hear them talk about going through detox, whether it's for alcohol or drugs or whatever the substance is. Those are the same kind of symptoms that they manifest. And so flat out, is it possible to be as addicted to food as somebody would be for drugs or alcohol? Absolutely, it's possible to be as addicted to food and have those same symptoms when you're withdrawing from that food. And when humans are addicted to something, they will do whatever it takes to keep that substance. So they will, you know, lose their job. They will stop bathing or whatever it is. You know, those other things were not the priority to them as much as obtaining their drug of choice, their whatever it is that they're hooked on. Um, all other normal activities have kind of fallen to the wayside. And so we see both preclinical and, of course, clinical human studies that, you know, that back that up. A large reason for that is we've got, as we mentioned in previ previously, we've got a hedonic or reward-based pleasure-seeking pathway that starts to override basically your, your body's homeostatic pathway. Your body's pathway that wants to maintain balance um, gets overridden by this pleasure-seeking pathway. Um, when we've got a ton of food, energy abundance, um, that's around, that is, in this case, McDonald's you're talking about, is, is formulated to want to, to increase intake. So it's, it's, we've got food scientists that work in labs that are, their whole job is to formulate the best recipes to increase consumption, right? It's a, it's a business thing, right? It's a business. It's being looked at for business. They want to sell more french fries. How do we sell more french fries? Making them taste really, really good so that they're hooked on them. So it's not, it's not a mistake by any means that that happens. When I would go on a diet and I would go a few days without uh, giving in and, and eating fast food, uh, when I would return inevitably to the drive-thru and I would come home with my $20 uh, worth of fast food, I would sit down and I would take that first bite. Now, mind you, again, I was feeling sick physically and I was just an angry mess, not somebody that you wanted to be around, right? So I was going through that detox, that withdrawal. Um, but when I would take that first bite, Dr. Witt, it was like there was this, this there's no other way really to describe it other than this wave, this rush of relief. And it was, it was like a warm, almost physical sensation uh, that, that washed over me. What was going on in my brain that would be causing such a sense of relief? Like what was actually happening inside the dome at that point? What was happening inside the dome was dopamine. <laughs> I have this really funny South Park clip that I play for my students when we talk about this. But dopamine, it, it's the devil talking to Stan, and it's, he talks about dopamine and addiction. It's really funny, and they all laugh. But at the end of the day, the devil says, it's dopamine, silly. And it, it is. It's exactly, I'll have to send you that clip, by the way. It's pretty funny. But <laughs> that's exactly what's happening. All common drugs of abuse increase dopamine, neurotransmitter, that um, is meant to um, be released by the, by the neuron and, and hang out in the synaptic cleft and then get lifted back up into the presynaptic cleft. So what happens in addiction is where we get hooked on that pleasure feeling. When the dopamine comes out and is released, 
we want that. We want more of that. And so, um, yeah, and one of the things that we study that I can talk about are the different regions of the brain uh, where dopamine is released, and that basically makes us the pathway um, for brain reward. And so naturally, we're supposed to feel pleasure when we are when we eat. Why? Because of survival, right? We always, our bodies and our brains are always fighting for us to live. They don't want us to die. And so from an evolutionary perspective, it's good to feel pleasure when you have a dopamine release, when you eat food. It's not so good to have an overdose of dopamine and then to want more and more because the amount you had upon first exposure isn't giving you that high anymore. So the short answer to your question was dopamine stuff, and uh, it gets really out of whack for, you know, lack of a better way of describing it, when someone becomes cooked on foods that release dopamine in, in tremendous amounts when they really shouldn't be releasing them like that. Um, in our previous episode, you, I think you mentioned that sex and food were the were the two big dopamine triggers uh, in life, right? So that's that's kind of what makes us happy. Um, yeah. And, and and I'm curious though, like, so say with somebody who gets addicted, in this case, we're talking about food, but really this would apply to any other substance. If they get super addicted to food um, and that is really the primary dopamine release trigger in the brain, does the brain then not release dopamine for other things? Like is sex suddenly less pleasurable? Is just being happy, being around friends and family? Is that suddenly not as... as, as pleasurable as well? Does the brain stop making as much dopamine in other cases? Great question. Um, I would say, so to be able to give a definitive answer, you have to really dive into the, the field of food addiction research. Um, the short answer, I guess I would say, would be perhaps, because we do see that in drugs of abuse. So the short answer is more than likely yes, but I, as a scientist, want to have the, the data to show you yes, definitively yes. Uh, I say more than likely yes, because if you are in the throes of food addiction, which is defined very loosely, Nestler and his colleagues in 2009 kind of started um, the ball rolling and putting this term out there, um, is simply a loss of control over food intake. And so whereas addiction, we know from the Diagnostic Statistical Manual for Mental um, Disorders, it's the manual that the APA, American Psychological Association, puts out every year for psychiatry and psychology to be on the same page when it comes to criteria for meeting certain um, disorders, and that obviously gets revised every every so often, and so there's a big push to get food addiction in there. The latest version of the of the DSM uh, does include kind of a sidebar of food addiction, but right now, it's not it in and of itself its own disorder, but it's going to be. I know it. I see it getting there because we uh, researchers are working, Gearhart and their colleagues are working on a tool to measure it. So when you get to a certain point where you validated a tool and you've replicated findings, then you can finally say, this is worthy of becoming something in, you know, in the psychological jargon, in the literature, and we can diagnose it. And then more importantly, we can bill insurance for this specifically so that we're all, you know, treating the same thing, calling this, you know, calling the state of state, I guess is the term, I don't know the term is, but calling it what it is. <laughs> How much research right now is being done on food addiction? Because I know that I think maybe it was from Yale or Brown or one of those Ivy League schools, they actually came up with, or Harvard, a food addiction scale where they kind of yeah. rated yeah, how addictive a particular food is. That's Gearhart and their colleagues, the Yale food addiction scale. That is, there's some literature out there. Every, every, few, every year or so, I start to see more utilizing that. They're fine tuning that tool, that tool. So, um, that's what, that's where we're at. Um, I'm not going to pretend that I'm buddies with them and I know what inner workings are going on, but I do know 
every so often I see a new piece of literature pop up from that group and from others who are wanting to fine tune that tool. And I believe they want to create, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but I think a pediatric version as well. So um, it's really, really important. And I know that they know this, uh, that when you are going to try to get a new construct, such as in this case, food addiction, to be a real you know, medical term that you need to um, get all your ducks in a row and be able to have exact criteria that you want to say is, is necessary for a patient to, for you to be able to diagnose someone with this particular um, condition. And so, yes, the Yale Food Addiction, Yale Food Addiction Scale is, um, is a tool that I believe is in the works of being validated. And so they're, like I said, they're fine tuning it, but um, be on the lookout for that because once that is set in stone, I think that's the next step for us to be able to really have this term, this diagnosis to be official as food addiction um, in medical science. And because we have a tool now to measure it. As more and more research is being done, gradually uh, the concept of food addiction is being more accepted. But what would you say is the majority feeling about food addiction right now? A lot of people say it's just, it's false. You know, they'll go back to what your students say at the beginning of the semester, that it's a lack of willpower, that, you know, it's, it's just people are choosing to eat these unhealthy foods. But what is the pervasive feeling about food addiction, would you say, right now in this country? Good question. I can't speak for the rest of the country, but I can say that whenever it is a topic that comes across, I guess, the mainstream press, I think that people are, people's eyebrows raised. They're like, oh, maybe that's why I can't put down, you know, that kind of ice cream every time. Uh, but I can say it's not so simple to say that, you know, one person is suffering from obesity due to food addiction um, and just like everyone else is. I can't, you can't blanket statement that, right? That's why uh, it's such a complex issue. But it could be the situation where somebody's brain mechanisms that underlie their drive to procure and consume food gets hijacked um, when one becomes dependent on particular foods, just like when they become dependent on a drug. So it's those pathways, this pathway in particular, that starts to override, you know, other pathways. So I, as far as the general understanding of it, I think people have a real um, non-in-depth, kind of a, a cursory understanding of that. They can get addicted to food and they may know better and just they're anecdotally in their own lives to stay away from Pringles or to stay away from whatever it is that they can't stop eating. Um, so oftentimes when I do, when we do get into the addiction, um, food addiction and obesity in the course that I teach, I have uh, the students read um, some studies that have been done to look at, um, to look at this concept. There's so many cool studies and one of them really is really neat. They use like uh, M&M's and they use, I do this because they have to pick up the same food, cheese, cheese, little tiny bits of cheese so that the action of picking up is the same regardless of what you're eating. Um, and one of the outcomes with regards to those, the, a lot of those studies is, and one of the things I always kind of take home from it is, is perhaps that there's a trigger food that someone knows that they just, they overeat it. I, I would not be surprised. I mean, it's not like I'm doing uh, an fMRI and looking at what's going on in their brain, but you can know whether or not you feel a loss of control at the end of the day. And at the, again, as I said, loss of control of food, over food intake is that broad definition that we're using sim to simplify what food addiction is. Um, reinforcing and, re and rewarding is uh, one of the hallmarks of addiction. So that certainly can be one of those things for a trigger food loss of control of limiting intake um, and and certainly the state in which someone engages in a compulsive behavior, even when faced with negative consequences. 
So all of those things are hallmarks of addiction. And so I think if anyone can honestly look at their own intake of a particular food that they feel like they just can't control, uh, I wouldn't be surprised that, that almost everyone can, can say that they've experienced that. Um, and whether or not it's taken over their lives is another story. So it, I think it's so important that we get this to be a medical, a term in medical science and a measurable term at that so that we really can get at what's the underlying, you know, what's not necessarily the underlying cause, but what is one of the main issues as to the development of a person's state of obesity. And so that we can tackle it appropriately in an individualized manner. Let's talk about how quickly someone can become addicted to food because growing up uh, in school, we had what was called the DARE program, okay? Drug Abuse yeah. Resistance Education. And the, the, the material that was covered there has stuck with me my entire life. And one of the things that we were warned about at a very young age was that you can become hooked on a drug after using it just one time. So applying that theory here, how quickly can a person become addicted to a particular food? Is it one Pringle and you're hooked? It depends on how well formulated that food is, right? We know all the different tastes, sweet, salty, you know, umami, bitter, sour. Um, but those food scientists are not um, employed for nothing. <laughs> They're employed to get that right formula that's going to make you want more and more of that particular food. And uh, what ends up happening is, I mean, think about it. We, I'm always pushing whole foods, mostly plants, is what I tell my students. Whole foods, plant-based, how it was made in nature. I tell my five-year-old, now six-year-old, I say, you know, those grapes or that, you know, orange is nature's candy. You know, that's fructose. That is the, the best, the most sugar you should really have. That you shouldn't have all this added sugar because that is going to hijack your brain and make you hooked, right? So it's all about what kind of, um, what kind of, what's the word I'm looking for? Basis, what platform? Like if your palate is already a hyper sweetened palate, you're going to need more and more. So how quickly can you become addicted? It become, it, if you're coming from mostly eating whole foods, plant-based, and you slip up once, that, that, that ability for that dopamine to, release, to be released and that pleasure to be felt is very strong, right? I think you talked about it once before in one of your other interviews about, you know, once you haven't eaten something for a while and then you go through it, it's overly sweet. Um, and so if you haven't been weaned off of something and you're kind of in that, like you sometimes exposed to it, uh, situation um once you once you have it readily available you know if your mom gives you gummy bears in your in your lunch every day um you're going to want more and more that mini pack is going to become a bigger pack and it's going to become bigger and bigger how long it takes really depends on to get, to get at your question you know how long it takes to be hooked um it just depends on the exposure and the initial the initial palate of of the person um, because I think coming from, you know, not having a highly sweetened palate, once you get exposed to it, you're like, Ooh, I want that. That felt good. Okay. Maybe once next week I'll have that again, you know, and then twice next week and then gradually yeah. more and more because it's a good feeling. We want to feel pleasure. <laughs> um, so it's important that we mod modulate that as best we can. Here's something interesting. Um, I guess we can even tie this back to the keto diet, right? This is an interesting thing. We, we talk keto on the show quite a bit. Uh, always, the people always want to know. Um, but with the keto diet, that is very much high fat, high protein, low carb. Um, and what a lot of people would say is a healthy diet. Others say not so much. Um, but regardless, one of the things that people eat on a keto diet is an abundance of meat. 
And when it comes to addiction, would I be correct in saying that uh, fat, uh, salt, and sugar are like the three big things that really light up the brain? Is that correct? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. There's a lot of case research out there. I didn't specifically do a ton of case research, but there's a lot of people specifically studying case. And um, they look at all these different elements and these different regions of the brain that are activated um, as a result of different tastes. But yeah, right. you hit it right on the head. I mean, that's the, not necessarily the magic formula, but the, the formula used you know, right. to get us to that point. So check this out. So then when I think about that, I think about a high protein diet, then I would say, well, look, you know, one of the things that hits that trifecta on the head would be like a, a honey baked ham. All right. So you certainly yeah. got the, the sweet there with the honey. Uh, you got the salt because it's ham um, and you got the fat again because it's ham. Um, that may be something that would be on that person's high protein diet that they weren't necessarily eating before. So in using that, is it possible for someone to develop a food addiction if they go on one of those types of diets, even if they had not had a food addiction previously? Without a doubt. I mean, and they're training their palate to like this stuff because they, you know, think that that's what they're supposed to eat. So without a doubt, yeah, without a doubt, they can become hooked on that, on the, that combo um, and, and want more and more of it. Um, the, there's so many perils to the, you know, the keto slash selfie plus, you know, severely low carb diet that won't go away. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's an issue for sure because people see short-term, you know, uh, superficial results, but they really don't see what's happening inside um, and the long-term impact of that. And also the lack of sustainability of that. And there's so many issues with it, but it's, our bodies are not meant to completely avoid one of the three major macronutrients, carbs. <laughs> uh, in fact, it should make up the, mo the bulk of your diet in healthy forms. So yeah, it's one of those myths that won't go away that I always have to break down every semester. <laughs> um, so let, let's talk about this. Um, dopamine is what we have been talking about primarily. Uh, is that the yeah. only chemical that is uh, at play here when it comes to uh, whether or not a person gets addicted to food or are there other chemicals that need to kind of mix in there as well? I'll say serotonin is one of the other key players in terms of neurotransmitters, but oftentimes, and why we know this is because in addiction research, uh, and in addiction in clinical settings, they'll look at um, serotonin, selective serotonin, serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, or different dopamine drugs, right? The reuptake inhibitor allows serotonin to hang out. For instance, if someone is depressed, um, this is another pleasure hormone. So if someone's not feeling a whole lot of pleasure and they don't get a whole lot of pleasure out of life, um, are things that used to drive pleasure. And SSRI is one of those uh, drugs that basically will leave um, serotonin hanging out in the synaptic class longer. It won't get taken back up. Um, and so it will as quickly as it, as it had been. Um, and so it will inhibit the reuptake of serotonin, so to speak. And so that is certainly another, um, another player. Dopamine's the, you know, the superstar, but, uh, serotonin is another neurotransmitter that gets talked about a lot in these circles. Um, because it impacts mood and in particular, it increases pleasure when it's hanging out in the synapse. Uh, one of the things that I tell people as far as the way that I was able to overcome food addiction, and I will never say that I'm cured from it, uh, I, I've just overcome it, um, is that uh, the whole food plant-based diet has really enabled me to kind of conquer uh, that addiction beast. What is it specifically about this diet that is so beneficial for someone who is struggling so mightily with uh, food addiction? 
I think the main thing is, is what you said, whole foods, plant-based, but whole foods, foods that look like they did when they were growing in the ground, the ones that have not been genetically modified or engineered, chemically engineered in the food lab. You know, if you're looking at the food you've eaten all day and none of it looks like it did when it was grown in nature, then we need to reevaluate what you're eating. Um, I, I make a really, as a mom of two little kids, I make a real big point to talk about the food that we're eating and what it is. Um, my my six-year-old has seen and loved French fries because he's seen them and has tried them, uh, you know, in school or wherever. And I I make I get chopped potatoes and I I make them real skinny and I'll put them in the air fryer and I said these this is how you make a French fry, you know, and this is actually a better way to make a French fry because we're not, I, I teach him the best I can and explain to him in the ways that he should learn. Everyone should learn this, you know, because if you're eating foods as close as they came to, in nature and you're the one manipulating, you're not buying them from a, you know, French fries is my example here. You're not buying them already, you know, having already been processed elsewhere, then, um, then you're in a good place because you're going to set yourself up and your palate up. To, um, to want and crave things that we are naturally meant to crave and want and see at a level um, that is homeostatic, that is, not, that, is, that is naturally homeostatic. So it's not being hijacked. Your, your hedonic pathway, your pleasure-seeking pathway is not being hijacked. And I say that word purposefully because these, these foods are purposefully engineered to do that, to hijack our homeostatic, our balance, our system that allows us to keep ourselves balanced. It hijacks it and, and comes in and says, you want to feel good. You want to feel good. And you like this food because this food makes you feel good. And so the more you introduce those foods, those foods that have been processed, um, the more opportunity you're giving to uh, these influences, your plate, uh, to be overrun and to allow you know, food addiction potentially to, to develop. Whereas, as you said, this whole food plant-based diet has been, you know, it's been the panacea for you. And it's not surprising because you're, you're eating what your body was meant to eat and you're, you're keeping it in check, so to speak, because of that. So. Let me ask you, uh, you, you mentioned your kid here, and I think that uh, we, I know for a fact that we have quite a few parents who listen to the show, um, and they may be wondering, like, well, how concerned should we be about introducing or their children being introduced to these types of foods when they're not around? You just mentioned uh, your kid being introduced to French fries when they were mm -hmm. at school, certainly not at your own house. So how concerned are you? How concerned should parents be about these foods being introduced to their kid's diet? Ah, it was always the thing that uh, that hurts hurts me as a nutrition scientist, as a you know a neuroscientist, but nutrition as a food person, as a whole food plant based diet you know advocate. Uh, that as soon as my son was, I have two sons, but as soon as they were in school, uh, they were exposed to all these other foods, uh, and and kids would maybe look at their tofu and rice that I packed for them, be like, what is that, you know? Um, but much to my chagrin, my, my kids still prefer, you know, their tofu and rice and their food. But they, that's not to say that if they see French fries and they're offered them, they don't want those. <laughs> so it's a concern. It's always a concern. It should always be a concern of any parent uh, as far as outside influences on your child's food intake. But the big thing that we need to do is to continue to model healthy behavior um, and to not be afraid to educate your child about what's on, on your plate and why we eat the way we do. 
I uh, I told tell my son because he's got a great grandma who likes to get him potato chips. <laughs> and I say, that's for special occasions and you're only supposed to eat a tiny bit because it's junk food. <laughs> like I use words that he understands and I and not only because it's junk food, it's not food that it maintains our health. So I use words at his level, I mean at his level and sometimes above his level and he understands it. So um, it's really important to always have that conversation so that your kids aren't thinking, um, oh, I can't wait to sneak French fries. They, they understand the bigger reason why mom says this is a, a, a special occasion type thing and something we shouldn't eat often nor a lot of. So it's, I think the reason is important because otherwise it's a, it's just a, a punitive thing. Like you can't have that. It's not, you can't have that because I want to be mean. It's, you can't, you should not have that because for your health. I want you to live long. I want you to be healthy. After they, after they've gotten those chips as the special <laughs> treat, um, do they still kind of get it as excited for the food that you are fixing at your home? Or is it like, yeah, those fries that you're making mom, they're not bad, but boy, I could really go for, you know, some from McDonald's right about now. No, uh, they don't know McDonald's thankfully, but yes, they do. Um, I, they do still, thankfully, because they only do, it's only sporadic when they are exposed to that. Um, their meal is there. They see their meal there that I've prepared for them, and that is always what they prefer, thankfully. They haven't gotten to a, any point where they've had any of these foods in excess to the point where um, they've overridden, you know, their desire to eat the healthy stuff. They may not eat as much of it because they've already gotten some calories in from the chips, um, but they still will want it, which is important. The brain is a funny thing. Even mm -hmm. after uh, I, I adopted the whole food plant-based diet, I've still found, and in speaking to others, they have said that they are the same way, that you still kind of, you know, want to eat the same thing frequently, right? And so while the cravings are much different, I, I certainly wouldn't say that uh, I'm addicted to it. I've always wondered what the difference is between the cravings uh, that, that I'm experiencing now, or that a lot of people just experience like, man, you know, that sounds pretty good. I'm craving this food versus again, being super addicted to it. Right. So if I don't get my yeah. kale salad, I'm not going to go through withdrawal or detox yeah. or have the Jekyll right. and Hyde personality here. So <laughs> what's the difference between the two? Yeah. Well, the difference is you, you have a craving because you like it and you feel pleasure and you feel pleasure at a normal level right? It goes back to the whole natural level of pleasure that your body is supposed to feel when it eats food, when it eats calories, when, um, you know, when you consume something for your survival, right? It gets back to food and sex being the things that trigger those pleasure hormones, right? Those are the two things important for our survival as a species. So you're eating a whole foods plant-based diet, you're not going to have some over rush, you know, some overblown dependency on kale, <laughs> uh, because nature didn't bioengineer the kale leaves to make you, you know, be that way and release too much dopamine when you have them. That's why, you know, that's the difference. You haven't gotten to, and you won't get to that point where it's a must have it or, or else situation because this is nature's, nature doesn't try to trick humans to buy more kale. <laughs> nature just creates food to make you feel good and to nourish you. Whereas food manufacturers, do make food to, for lack of a better word, trick you into eating more and more of it because the bottom line is the dollar sign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's so funny when you have these conversations with someone who hasn't been introduced to this type of information yet, they really do kind of look at you like you have two heads, like you're just spitting some <laughs> wild conspiracy theory. And even though I'm like, well, look, 
you know, <laughs> the physician's committee filed a FOIA request. I have all of these documents showing, you know, a connection between these food scientists, these big uh, fast food companies who you've been talking about and these government agencies and the link to get people, for example, to eat more cheese, right? You know, mm -hmm. or, or Wendy's, you know, the summer of cheese, like all of this stuff, you know, there is a whole lot of science that goes into it, but they're like, no, you're just talking crazy. You know, you've let your whole weight loss thing go to your head. I'm like, no, man, this is why we're in the situation that we're in. And I, Absolutely. I, I dearly wish that more people would just kind of like mm -hmm. open their mind and just be willing to listen and not shut it down straight away. Because once they do, I think that that light bulb goes off and they'll have this aha moment. Like, well, no wonder I want to go to Burger King every night, right? No wonder that Whopper is so delicious. It's not just my fault. There are many, many factors going in here that are working against me and, and working essentially for me then to get to that drive-through, to get to that Whopper. It's amazing to me when, when people have that epiphany. Like, that's got to be so cool for you as a professor when you see your students kind of have that that moment during the semester when everything starts to click for them. 100%. It's very similar to that experience. Um, yeah, you mentioned the drive-through lines. It's just, it still boggles my mind that people sit in those lines for that food. I'm like, what? I don't get it. This is this is so crazy to me. But at the same time, I am in this academic bubble. You know, I studied injustice behavior for a very long time and went to conferences, science conferences on ingested, the science of ingested behavior, where we absolutely had those companies there learning, what does everyone, what did you learn about, you know, this particular neural pathway as it relates to this sugar fat combo or this and that. They're there learning so that they can take it back to their labs and continue to build on that for their profit. <laughs> as a scientist, I'm there to learn truth. I love to teach truth and that's why I, you know, do the research that I do. Um, and I guess it's a pure, pure uh, motivation, whereas their motivations are absolutely for profit. And yeah, my students do. I, I love to see the transformation throughout every semester um, because uh, all we talk about is evidence-based science so that they can be rest assured you're getting science. You're not getting, you know, a TikToker, an influencer telling you what to eat. Um, you're getting what science says, what the scientific consensus is. And it always ends up, you know, with whole food plant-based. And I love it. I love it when they ask me for advice. And um, because I'm not there to give dietary advice, I'm there to talk about nutrition science. And right. I love it when they when they send me emails. It's the most reassuring thing when I get those student emails throughout the semester and ultimately at the end as well. And then after the semester's wrap, um, it's such a great feeling to see it's hitting home. That's the best thing. That's the best thing you can tell me is that you're going home and applying the principles you learned in our class to your own life. And there's always, there's always that. They're always telling me about this family member, that family member who suffered, you know, a cardiovascular event, given that cardiovascular disease, number one cause of death, men and women, the entire planet Earth, um, and that they realize this is the way, this is a lifestyle change that you can do to arrest and reverse it. Um, and so I love that they're listening and that they're applying it to their lives. It's, it's great. Ah, oh, man, you know, I, I wish that we had just days to to do this uh, podcast together uh, because there's there's just so much that we still haven't gotten to. Uh, one of the the final questions that I have for you today is this. I mean, we we've talked about food a lot, but um, a lot of people, you know, are are a slave to the bean, as I like to say. Like they crave coffee, right? So they have to go and they have to get that coffee every day. Um, is mm -hmm. it the same kind of reaction that's happening in the brain with caffeine as it is with these 
high fat foods that we've been talking about, or is this another type of addiction? Uh, it, it will activate the same pleasure pathway. Caffeine will activate the similar part of the, the pleasure pathway. I can't pretend that I'm in, knee deep in the caffeine research, but I can say I've seen it and come across it uh, from time to time. And absolutely. I mean, uh, same idea when you look at nicotine. You know, we have, um, and then I didn't get into, I, I held back from getting into all the different nuclei, the different particular uh, nuclei within the brain that we know are involved in this circuitry. But for sure, within the within this circuitry, we have um, increases in these neurotransmitters when we're exposed to certain drugs of abuse. Caffeine is one of those um, one of those substances that can certainly activate the pleasure pathway and put it on overdrive, without oh, a doubt. Yeah, um, well, as well as nicotine, you know, all those things. Yeah, you're going to come back on this show. I'm telling you right now. Um, Anytime. You're going to come back and, and we're going to get into all of those those things that you were you were just talking about. Um, so given that, though, if if the brain can get hooked on caffeine and we know that fat and sugar are also some things that are big dopamine release triggers. Um, so if you take that cup of black coffee and mm -hmm. you turn that into a caramel macchiato with whipped cream and caramel and sugar and other cream put in there, uh, how much more addictive, just, just a hypothesis, does that drink become? Exponentially, exponentially more addictive. Not to mention the fact that your, um, your insulin, your, your pancreas is insulin, insulin, insulinogenic response is going to be an overdrive because it's not supposed to have an influx of liquid sugar. Like that's so not natural, you know, aside from sap, like what in nature is like that, you know, and sap is not flowing like a macchiato like that or whatever it was that you said. So exponentially uh, more likely to become hooked as yeah. a result. Nature's sugar, Starbucks, 2021. Uh, you were talking about the lines to go to fast food places. I mean, the lines to Chick-fil-A are ridiculous, but equally long are the lines at Starbucks in some places. It is insane to me how long people are willing to wait for that one cup of coffee. And I would venture to say, based off of exactly what it was that you just said, the majority of them aren't just ordering a black cup of coffee when they go there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Without a doubt. And if there's any question, you're saying the circles that you're that you run in, and people are not believing you when it comes to the food being engineered. I mean, look at the lines, guys. Are you serious? <laughs> I mean, the lines speak for themselves. These people are willing to wait an exorbitant amount of time for the food. You know. Whatever, what more do you need? <laughs> I, I love your explanations and I love the way that you you, you break everything down. So really, um, there's so Thank much you. more that, that we could get into here. And so, like I said, uh, we will definitely have you back on the program because this is this is something that, yeah, we, we could talk ad nauseum about. But frankly, it needs to be talked about mm -hmm. uh, because more and more people need to continue to learn. Uh, about this, but people can learn more about you on Instagram at Mickey Eats Plants. You got a lot of beautiful dishes up there. Thank you. Thank you. I don't purport to be, you know, a food photographer by any means. It's just a place for me to post my food for people to be inspired. I'm happy to have it out there. Well, consider me inspired. And uh, your website is the same, MickeyEatsPlants.com, correct? It is. Man, your students are lucky, Dr. Witt. I would so love to take your course. I think that this is just fascinating. Thank you, Doc. You can audit anytime. If you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, I hope that you get the opportunity to check out part one 
of my interview with Dr. Witt. And if you scroll down to the episode notes, you will find a link to it. Spend some time with that as well. It is equally mind-blowing. And Dr. Witt and I, we're actually going to be taking the stage together on February 13th at the Southwest Florida Veg Fest in Bonita Springs. We're going to be taking an even closer look at everything we talked about today. And we're going to have the opportunity to answer a lot of your questions as well. And frankly, it'd just be great if you could come out and say hi. I would love to meet you. So mark your calendars, February 13th for the Southwest Florida Veg Fest in Bonita Springs. I do hope to see you there. Now, here is a fun fact for you. Did you know that the most popular food in America is also one of the most addictive? It's true. And that food is pizza. Pizza is king in this country, ruling the dinner table in dominant fashion. Check out these facts. The average person will eat about 6,000 slices of pizza in their lifetime. And now if you crunch some of those numbers, you add them all up, all 6,000 of those slices. <laughs> oh boy, here's what you get. 62,400 grams of fat. And then a jaw-dropping 1,710,000 calories. Yeah, let me say that again. 1.7 million calories. And that doesn't even include toppings. That is just plain cheese pizza, my friend. 62,400 grams of fat, 1,710,000 calories. Sir, any questioning why pizza is number one with cheese being perhaps so addictive, right? One of the books that I highly recommend to anyone who is struggling with food is The Cheese Trap. Dr. Neil Barnard makes a very compelling argument for why cheese may in fact be the most addictive food of all. I can't begin to tell you how many people have said, I'd go vegan, but I just can't give up the cheese. Hear that from people who even aren't trying to go vegan. They're just trying to cut back on fat and calories. And they'll tell you that cheese just calls to them and it keeps calling again and again and again and again until they finally give in. In that way, the brain is equal parts cool and cruel. Just amazing. And we're going to be talking more about this here on the exam room in the future. There is no doubt about it. But here is one thing that I want for you to realize. You need to know that even though kicking junk food to the curb can be one of the hardest things that you've ever done in your entire life, it's not impossible. I promise you, just as sure as you're listening to this podcast right now, it is not impossible to cut junk food out of your life. I've heard from so many of you who are going through these struggles, the same struggles that I had to go to extreme lengths to overcome. And my message is always the same. 
you already have what it takes to do this. Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard, but it is not impossible. You have the power to improve your health beyond your wildest dreams. And you know, sometimes on these journeys, a little bit of help can go a very long way. And that is why the plant-based doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center can help you. They can help guide you on your healthier journey to a new you, the you that you've always wanted. So go ahead and schedule an appointment today. Get that help. BarnardMedical.org or call 202-527-7500. Insurance is accepted. Telemedicine visits are available. So call for a full list of states where services are available. 202-527-7500 and schedule that appointment today at BarnardMedical.org. And for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Mickey Witt for teaching us everything that she did here on the show. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>